this morning we are picking up in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Uh, for a little over a year, our church has been taking a congregational journey uh, through John's Gospel. And uh, we've seen that there's some things in John's Gospel that are unique to the other three Gospel accounts. And one of the things that we only find in John's Gospel are seven I am statements from Jesus. And these statements confirm uh, Christ's identity as the Son of God and his mission as Savior of mankind. That he's come to make the old new, to make the wrong right, to make the unrighteous righteous, and to make the dead alive. And with each one of these statements, we see over and over again that Christ used Old Testament imagery to accomplish a couple different tasks. First, he wanted to give a, a promise to those who would believe in him. And then he wanted to give a warning to those who would reject him. This started in chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the, the bread of life. He's the true manna from heaven. He's the better Moses. But if you don't feast on the bread, if you don't feast on me, you'll starve. In chapter 8, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He's the pillar of, of fire that was guiding Israel through the wilderness. But if you don't embrace the light, then you will remain in darkness. In chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the gate. He's the Passover door. He's the gate into the sheepfold. But if you don't enter the gate, then you're a thief or a robber. Also in chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. He knows his flock. He calls them by name. He cares for them, protects them, and comforts them. But if you don't follow the shepherd, then you're not going to be safe from the wolves. You're not going to lie down in green pastures. Chapter 11, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He has the power over the grave. But if you don't trust him, then you won't live forever in the coming age. Chapter 14, we did this one a couple weeks ago. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he's the only way to the Father, the only absolute truth, the only life worth living. But if you don't know and honor the Son, then you don't know and honor the Father. And then finally, what we'll see in our passage today in chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the true Vine. He's the connection to the Father. He is the source of life. But if you don't abide in him, then you'll be gathered up like dead branches and you'll be thrown into the fire. And so we're going to focus our attention this morning on this final I am statement and the implications of it. Now, just to give you an idea of where we are in, in the Gospel of John, we're in the middle of, of what's called the Upper Room Discourse. Chapters 13 through 17, we find Jesus preparing his disciples for the cross. They shared the Last Supper together. Christ identified Judas as his betrayer and, and removed him from the table. He foretold that Peter would deny him, and he told his disciples, Just as I've loved you, love one another. And he explained that he was going away, but that they knew the way to the Father, and then he introduced the Holy Spirit that would be coming in about 50 days at, at Pentecost. And so at the end of our passage last week, at the end of chapter 14, Jesus ends his statement by saying, Rise, let us go from here. So all these chapters are called the Upper Room Discourse, but many commentators believe they didn't all actually happen in the Upper Room. Because in, in, in just a matter of hours, Jesus will be in the garden where he'll be arrested, put on trial, and then crucified. So more than likely, when we pick up the story here in chapter 15, 
we find Jesus and his 11 remaining disciples walking to the garden. And what's incredible about this moment, and we've seen this in the last few weeks as well, is that Christ has Calvary on the horizon. You know, that the shadow of the cross is looming larger and larger, yet he's spending these final hours encouraging and equipping his disciples. So let's start reading in verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the words I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved you, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name may give to you. These things I command you, so that you love one another. Now, you don't necessarily need a green thumb to follow along with Christ's gardening analogy here, which is good because my garden is full of weeds. I mean, it's, it's a disaster area. Um, so you don't necessarily need to be an expert um, on gardening. Um, and, and we should also recognize up front that, you know, you'd never use this same metaphor for sharing the gospel. If you had a friend was over at your house and said, hey, you know, I know you go to church. How do I become a Christian? You wouldn't say, let's take a walk. Let's go look at my rose bushes and I'll, and I'll talk you through it. Right. You wouldn't do that. But, but we can all understand that the basic ideas here in, in John chapter 15, Jesus is the true vine. Uh, the Father is the vine dresser, you know, or the gardener, and we are the branches. And as the gardener watches and evaluates the fruit of the branches, he, he prunes some, and they continue growing and producing more fruit, and then he cuts some off, and they can be, they're, they're gathered and they're, and they're burned. And so on a basic level, we, we see right up front that we want to be aligned with that first group. And we want to be connected to the true vine. We want to be pruned. We want to be watered. We want to be given just enough sunlight. We want to be cared for by the gardener so we can grow and we can thrive under his supervision. You know, we don't want to be a part of that second group because we see the warning in here that, that we can unknowingly exist apart from the true vine. 
Because when Christ says, I am the true vine, he is implying that there is a false vine out there. Remember, all of these statements come with a promise for believers and a warning for unbelievers. One of the central themes of God, John's gospel that we see over and over again is belief and unbelief. So once again, here in chapter 15, Christ is emphasizing the difference between belief and unbelief, the difference between sheep and goats. He's using this gardening metaphor to highlight the defining characteristics of those who believe in him and also highlighting the characteristics of those who don't believe in him. So this morning, we're seeking to accomplish a simple goal. Our collective goal will be finding individual answers to one pointed question. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you connected to the vine? Are you receiving life from the true vine? I can't answer that question for you. Your spouse can't answer that question for you. Your friend can't answer that question for you. Only you can answer that question. Are you abiding in Christ? You know, you may be a Christ follower. Maybe you're not a Christ follower, or maybe you, you know, you're not sure about your eternal standing, or maybe you you feel like you know Jesus, but you're not really feeling the warm fuzzies at the moment. And, and you pray in your bed at night, but you feel like you're just talking to your ceiling fan. And so for you this morning, it may be about establishing or reestablishing your connection to the vine. Or maybe you are a Christ follower. And maybe you've been a Christ follower for years. Maybe you're sort of sitting in your chair, you know, rolling your eyes. You know, why are we doing this? This is basic stuff. Well, your goal should be ensuring that you are part of the true vine. Because like we've said, there, there is a false vine out there. There is a false sense of security that can be had. And it is rampant here in the buckle of the Bible Belt where we are just overwhelmed by cultural Christianity. There are so many people that think they're going to heaven because their name's on a Sunday school roll or because they sit in a church pew occasionally. So, so are, are you certain that you're connected to the vine. I mean, wherever you land on the spiritual scale this morning, you have an opportunity for self-evaluation. And by the way, when you study scripture, self-evaluation is always a healthy practice. Right? If you, if you read God's word and you're thinking about someone else, then you have a problem. If you hear, if you sit on the teaching of a sermon, or you hear a lesson from your small group leader, or, or, or you see a, a short theological video that, that pops up on your Facebook page, or, or whatever it may be, if you see that, hear that, read that, and you think to yourself, man, I hope my husband is listening. I, I really hope my son is hearing this. I, I definitely need to send this link to my mother-in-law. If that's where your heart goes, then you are taking the wrong posture. So as we consider what it means to abide in Christ, what that truly looks like, your only goal, your only goal is to look at your own heart and, and take an honest evaluation of your own spiritual state. And so in our text, we, we have four characteristics of abiding in Christ. And we're going to work through these together. First, abiding in Christ means trusting his love. Verse 9, 
As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You know, your starting point is remembering, considering, and trusting in Christ's love for you. Because your relationship with Christ is founded on his love for you, not your love for him. And you understand this, that Christ loved you first. That you are only welcome into his presence because he made you clean. He tells the disciples this in verse 3. You are clean because of the words I have spoken to you. In other words, I, I explain the gospel to you. I explain what I'm going to do very soon on the cross and you have accepted it as truth. Therefore, you are made clean before your heavenly father. You're welcome into God's presence because of who I am, not because of who you are. And so if you abide in me, when God sees you, he doesn't see your imperfection. He sees my perfection. Now, these are are basic gospel concepts. This is gospel 101, but if we aren't careful, we can suffer from gospel amnesia, where we stop pursuing spiritual growth, where, where we, we're, we're happy in our complacency, where we use our faith as a means for grabbing a golden ticket to heaven and nothing more. Church, the only cure for gospel amnesia is gospel awareness, and if you're not preaching the gospel to yourself consistently, if you're not saturating yourself in the gospel consistently, then your outlook on the gospel will gradually start to shift. And what was at one point in your life great news may just become good news, and then just okay news, and then decent news, and then just news. You can't let that happen. You can't forget, you can't overlook, you can't belittle what Christ did for you on Calvary. You know, for better understanding of, of, of what he did, we need to look at, at, at his analogy's connection to the rest of Scripture. We've already seen in, in the previous I Am statement how Jesus is claiming to be the embodiment of, of different aspects and, and symbols from Israel's history. You know, when he said, I'm the bread of life, he's drawing a direct parallel to the manna from heaven in Exodus 16. When he says, I'm the light of the world, he's, he's the pillar of, of fire that's guiding the Israelites at night through the wilderness in Exodus 13. When he says, I'm the good shepherd, he's drawing a direct parallel to, to Psalm 23 and the shepherd imagery we see written by David and, and so on. But what's interesting is that in these first six I am statements, we see Christ representing certain symbols from Israel's history. He's talking about these certain aspects, these concepts, these Old Testament imageries that would, would take the first century audience back to a place. Right? That would take them back to what they learned about the Old Testament growing up. So he's representing certain symbols in Israel's history. But now, here in chapter 15, in the final Seventh and final I am statement. Christ is not claiming to be the embodiment of some element of Israel's history. He's claiming to be the embodiment of Israel itself. If we look back in the Old Testament, we'll see over and over again that, that God compares the nation of Israel to a vine or to a vineyard. You know, three notable examples for you. Hosea 10. Israel is a luxury at vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars, altars and destroy their pillars. Jeremiah 2. 
Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? In Isaiah 5, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So we see two things in all three of these verses, and, and there are a lot more examples in the Old Testament. First, we see in all three cases, Israel is the Lord's vine. Israel is the Lord's vineyard. Second, we see in all three cases, Israel has become degenerate, wicked, They're growing wild. They're producing bad fruit. Because of their sin, they would be rejected and they would be Severed, And so in the Old Testament, the, the vine was always the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel was always falling short of God's standard and suffering some sort of punitive damage for that. And then here we see Christ say, I am the true vine. And so he's using this wood pic, word picture to say, I'm coming to do what you cannot do. I'm coming to correct centuries of failure. I'm coming to remove a long legacy of shame, disappointment, and brokenness. I'm not pronouncing judgment on the vine. I'm not planning to punish the vine. I'm not threatening to uproot the vine. I am replacing the vine. This is the monumental claim that he's making. You were the vine. Now I am the vine. You failed I will succeed. I will do for you what you can't do for yourself. This is the gospel. My part is conquering sin and death. Your part is abiding in me. He says later in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know, one of my least favorite worship songs of all time is Friend of God. And there's nothing inherently wrong with it and I just don't prefer it it's really repetitive and it, it it has a little bit of a flawed premise because God the Bible doesn't talk much about God as our friend and he's our sovereign king he's the heavenly father he's created the universe but he's not called our, our friend but you see here that through Christ we're called his friends we're called his friends because Christ lets us in. Verse 15 makes this clear. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. For all I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. Now don't miss this. I mean, think about the closest human relationship that you have. It may be your spouse. It may be your, your parents. It may be your, your sibling or your best friend, but... You know, you feel a deep level of, of intimacy with one another because you have a history together. You have secrets. You have shared experiences. You have these inside jokes that, that no one else understands. Is there anything more awkward than being around a couple people and they just say chilies and then they bust out laughing about something that happened 12 years ago and you have no idea what's going on? But they had this shared experience at, at chilies over baby bag ribs. I mean, it's just, anyway, so you, you know, you have these inside jokes. You know them better than anyone. You trust them more than anyone. You love your best friend. You can't imagine life without your best friend. You feel this deep 
intimacy, and connection. But if you're in Christ, Jesus is a better friend than your best friend. He did two things for you that your best friend could never do. He made you clean from all unrighteousness, and he lets you into his inner circle. And he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, he'll never disappoint you, and he'll always love you. And so abiding in Christ starts with resting in this love, resting and, and recognizing and reminding yourself of his love. Second, abiding in Christ means treasuring his words. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then down to verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And by the way, this is the, the type of friendship that our oldest Parker desires. You know, you're my friend if you let me set the agenda and, and maintain creative control of, of playtime. Um, she's a little bit controlling. Um, but these verses are, are tricky because on the surface it sounds like Jesus is saying abiding in me is, is based on your ability to keep my commandments. That your connection to the vine is solely based on your performance. But Jesus is not teaching legalism. He isn't saying that his love is a reward for your obedience. He's saying that your obedience is a result of his love. You know, over the years, I'm 31 years old, and I've been a Southern Baptist since birth. I've told you before, I'm, I'm Southern Baptist born, Southern Baptist bred, and when I die, I will be Southern Baptist dead. And one of the things that I've seen in my 31 years is I've seen the Baptist church become worried and, and, and fearful and just petrified of being labeled as legalistic or, or fundamental. That, you know, these are terms that used to be pinned on us all the time in the 80s and 90s. And we don't want to hear these terms anymore. We don't want to be, we don't want to be that, thought of as, as small-minded, you know, or bigoted, or, or that we're, we're, we have this one-track mind where we only believe that God's Word is truth. And, and a lot of our churches don't want to be put in that category. And they get to a point where they start stripping God's Word of all authority in their lives. And it starts small. We start saying, I don't believe that all of God's word is canon. You know, the Old Testament has some weird sections. Let's, let's take those out. You know, Paul seems to have some, some interesting things to say about women. You know, let's get those out of here. James and Peter, they step on my toes a little bit too much. Let's move those out. Let's just, let's really focus on the red letters. Let's focus on things that that Jesus says, well, you know, not that or, or that. Let's, let's focus on these things. And then it, it deteriorates from there, and this gradual shift becomes a monumental shift where they say, I don't read or study the Bible at all. You know, it's antiquated. It's irrelevant. I have a spiritual connection to Jesus. When I pray, he hears me, and, and I can sense when he's speaking back to me. When I'm singing, I... I feel his presence and I'm out in nature. You know, I know that he's, that he's there. Yet here in John 15, Jesus himself is teaching a counterpoint. If you abide in me, you should abide in my word. I mean, remember, Christ is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the incarnate word. He is the personification of God's character. 
And, and look, we understand the Bible isn't God. The Bible didn't die for our sins, but the Bible is the word of God that shares the gospel story. And we can't separate the word from the word. We must understand that intimacy with Jesus comes from intimacy with his word. That if you're serious about abiding in Jesus, you must be serious about abiding in his word. If you want to drink deeply, intimately, and frequently from Jesus, then you must drink deeply, intimately, and frequently from his word. I heard a sister in Christ say this week, that you can't say God is silent if your Bible is closed. Abiding in Christ means treasuring his word. Third, abiding in Christ means bearing his fruit. In verse four, Jesus said, we cannot bear fruit apart from him. In verse five, Jesus said, whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. So every believer should bear fruit. Last Fall, we spent a few months working through the, the book of James on, on Sunday night. And uh, in chapter 2 of his epistle, James jumped into the bait surrounding faith and, and works. And you know, many Bible commentators over the years have tried to pit James and Paul against one another. They argue that you know, Paul writes about salvation alone through you know, faith alone and, and Christ alone and, and James writes, faith without works is, is dead. And so that's a contradiction. You know, Paul is, is pro-faith and, and pro-grace. And James is pro-works. And this is, is really foolish argument because both James and, and Paul are teaching truth and, and, and they're not against each other. They're, they're, their teaching should be viewed together because James is not pushing for theology centered on works. Instead, he's saying that your fruit, your, your good works are an indication of the authenticity of your faith. That if you're not serving the kingdom, you are not part of the kingdom. If you're not serving Christ, then you may not be following Christ. That's why he says faith without works is dead. Right? So, if, you know, if you go back to, to abiding in his love, that first point, if you're abiding in his love, that the overflow. Of, of the radical love that Christ shows you, the overflow in you should be that it flows from your heart to your hands and you're out serving. And if that doesn't happen, if you don't see that movement from your heart to your hands, then there may be an issue here. If faith without works is dead. And so, so Christ is following the same line of reasoning in verse 5. Whoever abides in me, he will bear fruit. So let's define fruit. There, there are two types of, of fruit. There's personal fruit and there's gospel fruit. Personal fruit is eternal. Gospel fruit is external. Personal fruit is your heart. Gospel fruit is your hands. So personal fruit is the pursuit of your personal holiness. As you move closer to Jesus, you continue to grow in spiritual maturity and walk in righteousness. And we see some in Galatians 5, Paul gives us the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. And these characteristics should describe the outpouring of a heart fixated on Jesus. That when you pursue Christ's likeness, you are molded into his image 
And he is the perfect embodiment of these fruits of the Spirit. And so you'll be more loving, more kind, more peaceful, more patient, more faithful, and so on and so forth. So personal fruit is the pursuit of your personal holiness. Gospel fruit is the spread of the gospel through your labor. This is when the Holy Spirit works in you and through you to share the gospel with others. For example, if you work in the children's ministry and one of the the children that you work with in children's church or small group ministry walks the aisle and makes a salvation decision, you are a part of their salvation. Or if you pray for a friend who's struggling with with depression and you don't stop until they rekindle their, their flame with, with Christ, you are part of that reconciliation. Gospel fruit grows from these tiny gospel seeds that you're planting every day. Now, the, the key thing here is that for gospel fruit and personal fruit to become a reality in our lives, we must hitch our wagons to Jesus. We will not bear fruit apart from Him, but He promises if we walk with Him, if we walk in Him, if we act like Him, we will bear much fruit personally and corporately. And our fruit is directly related to our closeness to Jesus. And I was thinking about an example this week where I, I learned this the hard way. When I was a seminary student, I, I preached the worst sermon of my entire life at, at Greenwood Baptist Church. That was, was my, my home church. And, you know, it, it was on John 14, 6. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when I preached that a couple weeks ago here, there were some moments during the week in preparation that I had PTSD about this night because it was, it was horrible. Um, I went into it thinking Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life. There's your three points. You just need to get you to a poem you can slap on the end or, or a good illustration you can slap on the end and you're done. I'll jot down a few notes. I'll expound on these ideas with some big words that I'm learning in seminary and I will crush it. And I actually said to my wife when she asked, how's the sermon coming along as she often does? I said out loud, oh, I'm going to crush it. But I didn't crush it. In fact, it crushed me. I crashed and burned. I preached for 14 minutes. And I know some of y'all are thinking, well, that sounds really great. I wish you could get back to that. But, but 14 minutes. I, I'd planned to go for about 30. And, and I can't tell you, I, I, can't, I can't describe to you the horror when you think you have 30 minutes to preach. And you flip and you're on your final page about 12 minutes in. You see that clock in the back and know that, that you're in trouble. But this particular sermon was uninspired, it was dull, it was ineffective, and it was humbling. It was a rough evening, but it provided an important lesson because I realized that night that I can't move the needle with my wisdom. I can't move the needle with my charisma. I can't move the needle with my personality. I can't change hearts. I can't change minds, but Christ can. Personal fruit and gospel fruit can only grow from branches firmly attached to the true vine abiding in Christ means bearing his fruits. And finally, abiding in Christ means enduring his pruning. Look back at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that may bear more fruit. Now we understand that the gardening metaphor, 
most plants require occasional pruning so they can, can flourish. You know, for example, if rose bushes aren't pruned, then a couple things can happen. One, the vines will begin to grow in on themselves and they'll choke on themselves and the vines will shield the roses from sunlight. Or two, the extra vines will become a strain on the shared resources and you'll only be able to produce these, these little tiny roses. And so without pruning, the roses will never reach their full potential. And, and we can agree that this is a, a counterintuitive concept, but we as believers function in the same way. Without pruning, without pain, without heartache, without trials, without suffering, we never reach our full potential. Listen, I know 2020 has been a challenging year for, for all of us, but 2020 may be the most difficult year of my entire life. We've got four months and we'll see what happens, but so far it, it's punched me in the mouth. I've dealt with disappointment in, in ministry. Y'all remember that after months of, of planning and, and preparing and praying, my first Easter at charity was on Facebook Live. I, I was in this room preaching to empty pews after casting vision and in January and focused on Who's Your One in February and ordering invite cards and planning social media posts in March, I, I became a, a televangelist almost overnight. And it was really disappointing. You know, I've dealt with drama within my family over the course of this summer. I've seen my immediate family um, have some strained relationships. My marriage hit a rough patch at one point. My children have went crazy at various points when we were in quarantine. And I've dealt with death. On April 27th, my grandmother died. On May 4th, Tip Culpepper died. On May 17th, my youngest son, Tripp, was running a fever, and we took him to the doctor, and they checked his blood work, and his white blood cell count was low, and nurse practitioner said, you know, don't worry, that isn't necessarily an indicator of cancer, and we thought to ourselves, and you probably shouldn't necessarily float the idea. And he was fine, but for a few days, we, we grappled with what if our 18-month-old baby that never stopped smiling has cancer? June 3rd, my uncle died. On, on Friday, one of the, the cornerstone members who was a deacon for 61 years in my home church died. And so I've dealt with all these things, and yet through all these challenges of 2020, I've found that Christ has been waiting for me in the bottom of every valley. Despite the chaos and calamity that's been surrounding my house, I've kept a white-knuckle grip on the promises of Romans 8.28 and the command of James 1.2. In Romans 8.28, Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And I've found rest in these truths that God is sovereign, God is gracious, God is faithful, and God is working all things together for my good and His glory. And with this gospel, confidence is my foundation. I've, I've watched God take my pain, my burden, my sorrow, my suffering, and turn it into joy. This is why James could write letters 
to a persecuted first century church who was scattered all over ancient Rome and say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And that just hits the ear wrong for us. It doesn't make sense to us. We're thinking, I sure hope that James is not in charge of hospital visits. James, my, my mother's sick. I think she's going to pass away. I can't lose her. She's the glue that holds our family together. What do I do? Count it all joy, brother. James, I lost my job. I don't know how I'm going to feed my family. Count it all joy, my sister. And so James' instruction doesn't make sense to us, but James understood the larger force that's working behind the scenes of our trials. James knew that trials mold, craft, and shape us into God's image. James knew that trials teach us to seek God's wisdom. James knew trials increase our dependence on God's resources. And James knew trials whet our appetite for God's eternal reward. So our joy cannot be stolen in trials because our joy is rooted in Jesus Christ. So church, here's the question for you. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you connected with the true vine? Are you trusting his love? Are you treasuring his word? Are you bearing his fruit? Are you enduring his pruning? When we live by Christ's design, we drink from Christ's joy. And Christ says it himself in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be may be full. Is that your testimony today? Can you say that right now my joy in Christ is full? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you for the ways that your spirit has instructed us. We've looked at all seven of these I am statements and we especially thank you for today. We saw that little subtle shift where Christ went from claiming to be a, a concept from Israel's history to being the embodiment of Israel itself. Where Christ looked at Israel and in turn looked at all of us and said, I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'm going to take all of your sin, I'm going to put it on my back, and I'm going to carry it to the cross and I'm going to wash it away. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, may we never forget that love that Christ showed us. So Father, help us this morning as we seek clarity about where we stand with you. Father, for those of us that are connected to the true vine, I pray that you would give us assurance. You'd give, you'd give us comfort. And Father, for those that are not connected to the vine, who maybe know that they are, maybe don't know that they are. Know they aren't, and maybe don't know that they aren't. Lord, that you would you'd make it clear for them this morning where they truly stand with you. Father, as we seek answers for this question during a time of invitation, are you abiding in Christ? Am I abiding in Christ? 
Lord, shine light in the dark corners of our heart and let us see where we truly stand. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.